There's a well-known theatrical story about an audience member who goes to see Hamlet for the very first time and then wonders out loud what all the fuss is about. They say it's just a play full of quotes. And of course Hamlet's famous soliloquy is chock-a-block full of quotes, not just to be or not to be, but slings and arrows, there's the rub, a sea of troubles, this mortal coil, the undiscovered country, and so on. Now this idea of Hamlet as a quote fest, in fact, has a very long lineage. It goes all the way back to the very first time it was printed a couple of years after it was first performed. Hamlet is Shakespeare's first play and one of the first plays ever to be printed with what were known as sententiae, or commonplaces, marked up for the reader. This meant that quote marks were placed around some of the most striking phrases in the play. So the idea was that when you bought your quarto of Hamlet, you'd be directed towards these quotes. You'd memorise them and then use them to impress your friends and give your conversation a little glitter of intellectualism. So right from the start, Hamlet has been recognised as a play full of quotes, a generous hoard of useful phrases available to us all. And it's precisely the uncanny quotability of Hamlet which a humanities professor called Regula Trelini studies. Regula has spent the last 20 years gathering well over 10,000 instances of other writers picking up quotes from Hamlet and using them themselves. You can see her work on a searchable website called Hyper Hamlet. It's currently undergoing some technical work, but it will be available again later this year. It doesn't just list the many ways other writers have quoted Hamlet, it also highlights the astonishing proliferation of Hamlet quotes in our day-to-day -day lives. The examples range from a Harry Nielsen song in 1969 about a woman waking up in the morning alone and looking at the clock, 7.30, time to be or not to be, he sings, to a question by a character in Sex and the City, tofu or not tofu. Hyper Hamlet also lists the knowing adaptations of the phrase, the endless appropriations, such as a political cartoon of Tony Blair in early 2001, to run on May the 3rd or not to run on May the 3rd, or a headline during the Covid lockdown, to mask or not to mask. This is a process called lexicalization, the way in which Hamlet's words have entered our lexicon, become part of the way we communicate with each other. The history of Hamlet and quotations throws up some unexpected insights. For instance, the phrase to be or not to be wasn't an instant classic. The evidence suggests it flew straight over the heads of the original audience, and it wasn't one of the phrases which the printers picked out as a commonplace either. It has no inverted commas around it. It wasn't until the second half of the 17th century that the speech started to worm its way into the national consciousness. Anthologies of poetic passages became more and more popular, and Hamlet's speech is a perfect candidate for inclusion, because it doesn't contain any references at all to plot points or characters from the play. It doesn't even contain the words I or me. It's all us and we. It's universalising and generalising, so it's perfect for anthologizers. Moralists of the time liked it too. They thought the speech directed the mind towards noble things, the contemplation of death and what may follow. It was held up as a jewel of the stage, dignifying what was still seen as quite a grubby profession. By 1710, it was being referred to as the celebrated speech, 
and it was also popular as a set piece with actors. It became one of the monologues which they used to show their quality. By the 1730s, one author could write that he didn't even need to discuss the speech because every English reader knows its beauties. Regular Trelini has a phrase for this process. Hamlet, she says, has left the page. Famous quotes have become detached, floating free of the play itself, entirely divorced from their original context, so you can very easily use many of its phrases without knowing anything about the play itself. Regular doesn't just study the echo chamber of Hamlet quotes, she's also interested in its possible predecessors, any sources which Shakespeare may have used. In effect, whether Shakespeare recycled quotes from other writers. Hyper Hamlet throws up some intriguing possibilities. A popular book of the time on oratory by Dudley Fenner says, an axiom or a sentence is an ordering, whereby a thing is said to be or not to be. Perhaps Shakespeare read Dudley's book, looking for tips on oratory, and this pleasingly symmetrical phrase stuck like an earworm in his head. Another popular book of the time was a translation of the Tusculan Disputations by the famous Roman author and statesman Cicero. It consists of five books, on the contempt of death, on pain, on grief, on emotional disturbances and on the possibility of a happy life. It says things like this, Death is either annihilation or a migration of the soul from one place to another. Now, if there is no consciousness but only a dreamless sleep, death must be a marvellous gain. It also says, Not to be when you have been is the greatest misery that may be. The contemplation of being or not being, uncertainty about the afterlife, the idea that death can be welcomed like a sleep or feared as something terrible. It's even been suggested that the book which Hamlet paces around all the time reading is in fact the Tusculan Disputations. Reading the book, it's suggested, sparks the soliloquy. There are quite a few more examples of Hamlet quoting other writers and recycling well-known themes of the time. The idea of conscience making us cowards, for instance, was often repeated. Now, Shakespeare was taught at Stratford Grammar School and it turns out that this practice of peppering your speeches with well-known quotes was something which all Elizabethan students were taught to do. All grammar school pupils were schooled in what was known as rhetoric, the art of how to argue, how to make a case and give evidence. They were closely drilled in a practice known as arguments on both sides. You were taught how to convincingly argue both sides of a contradictory question so you could find yourself very plausibly arguing one side and then, very plausibly, the other side. So in effect, you were taught to argue to be and then you were taught to argue not to be. That was your question. And just like Hamlet, to give weight to your argument, you were told to memorise and insert classical commonplaces. In effect, Adding quotes such as those from Cicero was seen as the equivalent of providing evidence for your point. In 1978, an American academic called Joel Altman wrote a fascinating book, which argued that Elizabethan drama was the result of this teaching of argument on both sides. Shakespeare had the ability to sympathise and dramatise two opposing points of view, 
because he'd literally been schooled in it. So had many other writers for the stage, such as John Lyley, Thomas Kidd, Ben Jonson and Christopher Marlowe. Altman thought these writers structured their plays around a central question. In fact, he thought the play themselves were effectively questions, dramatised inquiries. As Altman wrote, plays didn't just raise questions, they were questions. But he also pointed out a problem. All of these classical commonplaces didn't provide the writers of the time with a consistent and unified worldview, quite the opposite. Most of them were mutually contradictory. It was easy for a student to choose commonplaces which argued convincingly on one side or another. So in Hamlet's case, in favour of suicide or in favour of life. And there was a bewilderment of views on the kind of action Hamlet is contemplating, to be stoic or to be active, to use violence to overthrow a tyrant, to seek justice or is it revenge? Christian dogma was contradicted by the atheism or polytheism of the ancients and by Machiavellian theories of political realism which was spreading from Italy, while new scientific discoveries were destabilising any sense of philosophical or theological security. As Shakespeare's contemporary John Donne wrote, new learning puts all in doubt. Surveying this mixed and broken intellectual inheritance, Hamlet is left in a fundamental quandary. Are humans beasts or angels, or strange creatures that crawl around in between. In the course of their studies, this new generation of grammar school kids had discovered that both sides of an argument could be plausibly, convincingly argued. It led to flexibility and independence of mind, the embrace of ambiguity, nuance and a multiplicity of viewpoints. But Altman argued that it turned the brightest Elizabethan students into sceptics, even cynics, destroying any belief in a single, divinely mandated truth. In learning to become devil's advocates, Shakespeare's generation discovered the astonishing fact that both sides of an argument could be true at the same time, or at least they could seem true. It was the beginnings of philosophical relativism. How can both sides of a contradictory argument simultaneously seem true, or at least plausible? So this could be the roots of the despair which grips Hamlet. Can truth ever be grasped? Are words a clarification or an obfuscation? Is education a grounding in sophistry, an exercise in learning commonplaces and quotes, and not the search for truth? Hamlet is disillusioned with words, 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 and fears truth is relative. There is nothing either good or bad, he says, but thinking makes it so. Many other Shakespearean characters demonstrate the same relativism. Troilus asks, what is aught save us tis valued? While Feste in Twelfth Night says the meaning of words can be turned inside out as easily as a glove. The academic Rodri Lewis has argued that this is precisely Hamlet's tragedy. He's trying to express his deepest quandaries, but he can only speak in acquired philosophical catchphrases, parenting concepts from the tradition he's learned at university, but these are ancient words and concepts which Hamlet finds hollow now, meaningless in the face of the crises of the modern era. All Hamlet can come up with in his most famous speech is what Lewis calls bullshit. The soliloquy, he writes, is a beautiful exercise in humanistic eloquence. It does everything it's supposed to, apart from making sense. 
Hamlet is wrestling with the same problems we face today with the humanities in crisis. What is education for? What good can it do us? So if Altman is right, the fact that Hamlet is so quotable, his speeches are littered with literate quotes, is the roots of his anguish. He's learned so much, but it isn't helping. He's failed to find any certitude or security in all that knowledge he's amassed in his Renaissance education. In confronting the ghost, he's realised that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Logic and the wisdom of the ages fail him when he confronts the ultimate questions, the unknowability of life and death. So consciousness becomes the place not where Hamlet finds himself, but where he is lost. But just because Hamlet plunges into despair, we don't need to see things quite so bleakly. The ability to see the value in both sides of an argument is also a blessing, which an education in the humanities, the study of reason and logic can confer on us. Shakespeare came away from Stratford Grammar School with an astonishing ability to empathise with radically different characters and points of view. Not long after he delivers his soliloquy, Hamlet rediscovers his empathy and his drive for life in the theatre, where he plunges into writing and directing his own play within a play. The humanities, in that sense, become Hamlet's way out of his dilemma. The answer to his question could be the play's The Thing, a place where he finds meaning and identity, although ironically in make-believe and fiction. Today we face an even more baffling, self-contradictory cultural inheritance, an avalanche of confusing and contradictory informations and belief systems, while a cheap and shallow form of relativism exploits our confusion in a cynical attempt to divide and polarise. Think of Donald Trump trading in bizarre and fatuous alternative facts because the truth supposedly doesn't exist. Or Bill Clinton's infamous reformulation of Hamlet's question during the Monica Lewinsky saga. It depends on what the meaning of is is. If is means is and never has been, that is not, he told us. Radicalisation can develop when we don't have the tools to see things in the round, to embrace sympathetically opposing points of view. Extremism begins with a retreat from complex realities to simpler untruths. So we could argue we need more, not less, of Hamlet's ability to explore both sides of a question. And we could also do with more of Shakespeare's ability to see through all the bullshit.